Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse number 14. Mark chapter 9 in verse 14. Uh, let's go, Lord, in prayer one more time, and then we'll jump into God's Word. Father in heaven, we desperately need you this morning. Father, open our eyes that we would see, open our ears that we would hear glorious truths from your Word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see our, our desperate need for you today. That God, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would call us to follow you more, and Father, that we would not leave here the same way that we came here. So Father, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Mark 9, verse 14, let's stand to read God's word. If you don't have a Bible, there are, the words will be on the screen behind me, Mark 9, 14. The Bible says, now when they, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And some from the, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father said, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire, into water, destroy him. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was coming together, running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up and he rose. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You may be seated. 
Have you ever heard this statement? After great spiritual highs, often come great spiritual lows. You know, there are moments in your walk with God that you feel the presence of God and you're so excited about God and, and you're living for Jesus and, and you are just feeling this joy and exuberance. But then all of a sudden reality hits and disaster breaks out. Or maybe you've had a really, really good vacation and then you come home from that vacation and all hell breaks loose. Or maybe you've had a, a, a spiritual victory over a sin and you, you said no, and then the next thing you know, you fall to another temptation. Or maybe you've had a great moment with your family, that hallmark moment, that, just that, that wonderful moment, and then the next day, everything in your family's turned upside down. You know, it's amazing how quickly we can move from confidence to crisis mode especially when it comes to our faith. You know, we can take that which we believe so passionately today, we can be tempted to deny tomorrow. See, reality is that normal, ordinary life has highs and lows, good days, bad days, ups and downs, good hair days, bad hair days, no hair days. It can happen to all of us. The question is, how do we respond when the low comes, when the down comes, when the bad happens? See, faith is fine in the sunshine, but how is it when it rains? Understand that many of the struggles that you and I have in life are often centered around doubt and unbelief. And I found that in my own life, that the majority of my life struggles are faith issues. And those faith issues manifest in either A, my underestimation of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do, or B, my overestimation of who I am and what I can do. See, most issues in my life either are my underestimation of Jesus or my overestimation of myself or both. Can I get a witness on that? And so what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? Well, Matthew, Mark, pardon me, Mark chapter nine is going to deal with what I'm talking about. And Mark nine is a turning point in Mark's gospel that focuses on why Jesus came and what does it look like to follow him? If you were here with us last week, we saw that Mark, uh, pointed us to Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. And there we see the glory of Jesus on the mountain. But now in our text today, we see the need for his grace in the valley. And it's interesting that Mark actually spends more words describing what Jesus did in the valley than what he did in the mount, on the mountain. Why would Jesus spend more, why would the Holy Spirit spend more time dealing with life in the valley than what Jesus did on the mountain? It's because life is lived in the valley and it's important that we trust him in the valley. See, Jesus in this story or in this event or, or in other events, he wasn't just doing some random act of kindness. He wasn't just some altruistic person. This was an event. This wasn't just a story. You know, normally when you come to church, you hear Bible stories and maybe you grew up going to Sunday school and you remember flannel graphs and you remember all these stories, but I don't want you to read this or think about this in terms of story. I want you to hear this and think about this in terms of event, that here is a real dad and a real son and real disciples, and there is a real place and a real time, and here is a real problem. And what we're going to see is that Jesus 
is going to take time to heal this kid, to teach the dad of the kid, the disciples who tried to heal the kid, and us today about our need for faith and prayer as we follow him. And what Jesus wants to do, he wants to move them and he wants to move you and me. He wants to move us from desperation to desperate dependence. See, when you are desperate for help, you must always depend only on Jesus. So let's unpack this. Let's walk through these verses. First, we'll see desperate for help. Verse 14, that when they came to the disciples, remember Peter, James, and John, and Jesus were up on the mountain, and now they're going down back into reality. And uh, if you remember that Jesus on the mountain, uh, manif- he pressed pause on the miracle of the incarnation. He showed his glory to Peter, James, and John. The Shekinah cloud, the glory cloud was there on the mountain. The uh, Moses and Elijah came came speaking to him. The voice of the father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And and if you think about it, Jesus could have just stayed on the mountain, but he didn't stay on the mountain. He had work to do. Now, while Peter, James, and John and Jesus were on the mountain, the other nine disciples, they were down in the valley and they were doing ministry in the valley. And so just Jesus is coming back to where these other nine disciples are. The Bible says that there was a great crowd around the disciples. And so you have a bunch of people hovering around the disciples. There is some sort of spectacle going on. Now, this week in Naples, we've, we've, I've seen a, a few little fender benders and traffic is really backed up. The reason why is because everybody has to watch what happened. And so here, there's a car wreck that the crowd is watching down at the valley, uh, at the foot of the mountain. And what's going on is this, is that the scribes, the legal experts, you think, think biblical legal experts, kind of the Morgan and Morgan of legal experts, were arguing with the disciples. These guys had triple PhDs and the disciples were dummies, okay? They didn't really have that. You know, uh, the legal experts, they graduated uh, summa cum laude, and the disciples graduated, thank the good laude, okay? And so here you had this debate that's going on here. There's this arguing that's happening, and what are they arguing about? They're arguing over how to exercise a demon. How do you get a demon out? Now, exorcism um, was a widespread art in first century Israel, and it was a lucrative career. Now, people who got into exorcism, uh, they didn't really, they were very successful, and most of what they did was actually would be considered torture, uh, but they made a ton of money. And just as it was in that day, it is in our day, there was high demonic activity uh, in Jesus's day. And there's still high demonic activity today. Listen, Satan and demons are real. If you don't believe me, did you watch the Grammys, okay? Right? We are at war, okay, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a battle going on. Even this morning before church started at 830 service, there was a battle raging. Even in this room, there is a battle raging. And so here, the disciples were trying to exercise the demon. They were not successful. Everyone is watching them fail and flail. The scribes are criticizing. They were pressuring them. The crowd was being incited. And so Jesus, from the high of the mountain, is now coming down into the valley. And immediately, the Bible says that as soon as they saw Jesus, everybody ran to Jesus. 
Okay, the, the scribes are gonna run to Jesus to see what Jesus is gonna do. The disciples are running to Jesus because they needed Jesus to do something. And then you're gonna have a dad in a moment that's desperate for Jesus to do something. So Jesus comes down and he looks at these guys. He says, what are you arguing about? Now, don't get the idea that Jesus didn't know. I believe with all my heart that Jesus already knew what they were arguing about. He just wanted them to see how foolish it was to argue. You know how foolish it is when Christians argue with other Christians online, on Twitter, on social media, in religious arguments. You know how foolish we look to the world? And there's sometimes right now, you have people that are just arguing and, and bickering back and forth, fighting each other. And here's the thing, instead of praying and ministering, these disciples were too busy trying to win an argument. I just wonder how many times we spent all of our energy arguing with other people in the world rather than praying and ministering to people in the world. And so verse 17, the disciples aren't going to say squat. And so somebody says something. Who was it? We find out it's a desperate dad. Now let me just let you in on something. Those of you that are parents in the room, you know this is a true statement. There ain't no pain like kid pain, Right? You are only as happy as your unhappiest child, right? You gonna get a witness on that one? Testify, get your hanky out. See, your kids may aggravate you, and they do. But you love them, right? You'll do anything for them. So here is this, this man, and Matthew says he falls on his face. Luke says he begs Jesus to help his only son. So here you have a grown Jewish man on his face begging Jesus to heal his only son because he was desperate. Now, what was the desperate condition? Well, it was a chronic condition, condition that we know from hearing the story from the dad was from childhood for years. And what happened is that this guy's kid was demon-possessed. Now, some of you think your kids are demon-possessed. This guy's kid really was. And this demonic possession manifested itself in the fact that the kid was unable to speak. And then this kid would have what we would look like, what would look like epileptic seizures, epilepsy, in which he would roll around, foam at the mouth, probably biting his tongue off. Probably one of the reasons he couldn't talk is because he bit his tongue really, really bad. And then this demon from time to time would try to throw the kid into the fire or throw the kid into the water to drown him or to burn him. Now, I want you to think about this, Dad, how exhausted he must have been. Like some of you, you've had children, maybe your children right now, they have chronic health issues and how exhausted you are. Well, this guy and his wife lived in daily dread and fear that they may not be there to help rescue their son when he was in need. Think about the financial strain it put on the family. The dad may be not able to work or not able to do as much. There's relational strain in the marriage. Some of you, you have gone through this. And when your kid is sick, uh, maybe some chronic illness, a cancer or some other major issue, it's really put a relational strain in your home. But also think of the social and, and spiritual shame. Because in Jesus's day, most people believe that if your kid uh, was sick, if your kid had a disability, if your kid was demon-possessed, it was your fault as the parent. Now, we don't do that today, do we? Sadly, in the church today, 
We have people whose kids are addicts and they're struggling or kids make bad mistakes and do bad things. And we immediately, the number one thing we do is we blame the parents. It's not necessarily true. And he comes here to, to Jesus and, and he, said, he first says, I came to you, you weren't here, so I settled for your disciples. I talked to your disciples, they start doing their thing, but it was a nothing burger. I mean, it was nothing. Now think about this, the disciples a few chapters ago were actually empowered to go two by two out of the villages, preach the gospel and perform miracles and cast out demons. But in this moment, at the foot of the hill, they were powerless. And so this guy had, no doubt, he'd been praying for years for his son to be healed. He had sought out spiritual leader after spiritual leader, rabbi after rabbi. He's, he's paid an exorbitant amount of money to exorcist, and they've really done nothing. And he finally gets to Jesus' disciples, and they are absolutely useless. And sometimes I wonder if people don't come to church looking for help, and they don't find any, because we're useless. We'll find out why they're useless in a moment. And so Jesus hears this father's testimony and he says in verse 19, oh, faithless generation. He doesn't say unfaithful, he says faithless. And then he says, how long am I to live with you? How long am I to be with you? Now, some scholarship says that Jesus, he was just frustrated and he was just so angry. So he just said, how long do I have to deal with these knuckleheads? Okay. But I don't think that's really what he was saying here. I think what Jesus is saying is he was saying that he knew his time was getting short and these guys were supposed, these disciples were supposed to carry on the mission and these disciples had no faith. Sinclair Ferguson comments on this. He says, Mark vividly captures the pressures and frustrations of Christ's life in these verses. On the mountaintop, he had been faced with spiritual short-sightedness. In the valley, he's confronted by unbelief. And so here you have these disciples, they are faithless, this father who is desperate, these scribes who are furious, and Jesus stands here and he says, bring him to me. Jesus takes control. Jesus took the will. And they bring the boy to Jesus. Now, as soon as they bring the boy to Jesus, the demon inside of the boy started to convulse and caused him to have another episode. Now, you think that if you brought the boy to Jesus that the boy would be immediately healed once the boy saw Jesus and Jesus saw the boy. But here's what you've got to understand. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. You know, sometimes we come to Jesus expecting things to immediately get better, but instead it gets worse. Why? Because darkness is raging against Jesus's restoration. Satan doesn't go down without a fight. And so Jesus looks at the boy, at the man and the boy, the boy sitting there foaming at the mouth, doing all kinds of stuff. Jesus looks at the dad and just starts getting into a conversation with the dad. And he looks at the guy and he says, how long has this been happening? Now, Jesus isn't assessing the situation. He isn't doing triage. What Jesus is doing when he asked this question, he was entering into this guy's world. He was entering into this dad's world. He was showing this dad that he actually cared about the dad and his son. And, and in doing so, he was actually drawing out this father's faith. And that's what God's doing today. He's drawing out your faith. And so as the dad here is recounting how, how hard it has been for his family, how long they have been struggling, 
and how much darkness has been over their family for years. He's able to share his soul. And, and listen, some of you understand what, what, he, what he's getting at here. There's a dark shadow. Some of you even right now, there's a dark cloud over your family. Maybe you have a family member who's got a severe illness, or maybe you have a, a, a family member or a child who's dealing with addiction or, or living in a wayward, rebellious way, and, and it's really put a dark cloud over your life. And so this dad is sharing his heart with Jesus, and then he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, who are the us here? The us is the son, the us is the dad, probably the us is the mom. But notice, he doesn't say, if you would. He says, if you can. See, he probably came with hope. But since Jesus' disciples couldn't do anything like everybody else, he's probably lost hope. And so in this moment, he doesn't doubt Jesus's willingness to help, but he doubts Jesus's ability to help. Why? Because time and constant disappointment had eroded his confidence in God. Say, how many times have you prayed and asked God to help you, but you don't really expect him to do anything? You're desperate, but you don't really believe. And what Jesus wants to do with this man is to bring him from desperation to desperate dependence. So verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is calling this man to faith. See, faith recognizes that there is nothing that can hold Jesus back because Jesus is both willing and he is able. Faith sets no limits on the power of God to break into our lives and do the miraculous because anything is possible because Jesus is king. And so the issue is never if he can. Ability is never an issue with Jesus. There are no degrees of difficulty with God. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard. It's just as easy for him to create the world and everything in it and keep it going as it is to watch over you when you sleep at night. Now, when Jesus says all things are possible to the one he believes, what is he teaching there? Because some people will take that and they'll start saying that Jesus here is basically saying, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. That if you believe it, it'll happen. But Jesus is not teaching a, teaching a name it and claim it theology. He's not teaching a, having faith in your faith theology. Here's what I mean by that. There are some people that you've been told or you think this, that some people will say to you, you know, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. Or if you have just enough faith, God will do this for you. And what happens is, is that many of us get disappointed when the things we are praying for don't happen or they don't happen how we want them to happen. And we begin to think in our minds, well, maybe the reason why God didn't heal me or maybe the reason why God didn't do this for me is because I don't have enough faith. Listen, that's not the Bible. Faith is not a force you possess. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith, that what you put your faith in that matters the most, because your faith is only as good as its object. 
I can believe with all of my heart in something. I can be so sincere. I can read about it and I can think about it and I can dream about it and I can say positive thoughts about it and I can put all my faith in it. But if it can't do it, it don't matter. It's like this. I can believe with all my heart and, and read all that I can and talk all kinds of positivity and, and, and believe that Kentucky will win a national championship in basketball this year. But my faith is only as strong as that team is good, and they ain't very good. It would take a miracle for that to happen. What I'm getting at is this. Keller, Tim Keller puts it best. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that actually saves you. He gives an illustration. He says, imagine you're falling off a cliff, and as you're falling off a cliff, you see this branch and you immediately grab on a hold of the branch. He says, what matters the most? How strong that branch is, right? Because you can have cat-like, ninja-like, Chuck Norris-like reflexes and get the branch and hold on as tight as you can, but if it can't hold you up, it's useless, right? So he says this, he says, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. And so this dad, as Jesus is drawing faith out of him, in verse 24, he immediately cries out. That word cried out is found 10 times in Mark's gospel. And each and every time, it is a strong emotional outburst. So when I was reading the verses to you, I, got, I, I demonstrated just the veracity of this dad. It was a desperate shout. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. What honesty. What humility. It's probably one of the most honest prayers prayed in the Bible. Because in his heart, he believed. But he also doubted. I will tell you that everyone in this room and everyone watching online, you have the same issues that you believe, but you, but you also doubt. Now, the other day I was talking to a guy and I was kind of sharing with him what, what, what I was going to talk about this. And he said, well, I don't, I, I've always believed. I've never doubted. I said, would you ever worry about anything? He said, yeah. I said, well, you've doubted, right? See, what keeps us from crying out like this is pride. This man's honest, but, but what keeps us from being honest like him is we don't want others to know that we're struggling. We're from Naples, right? We, we, you, you, you've got to be tough. You, you can't let anyone know that you're struggling. Here's what I know, though, as a fact. Everyone in this room is struggling with something. You say, well, not me. Well, then you're struggling with lying. <laughs> you know what our impulse is? Our impulse is to try harder and do better. But you know what that is? It's proud unbelief. This guy says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that is a confession of unbelief. He confesses to Jesus, I don't believe you. <laughs> I want to, but I don't. And think about that. This confession of unbelief is actually an example of belief. See, this man has faith that Jesus can even help his lack of faith. He brought his doubts to Jesus because he knows he does not have what it takes to handle what he's facing. He knew that he was struggling and he needed help to just overcome his unbelief. 
because all of us struggle with it. Now, some of you were taught in church, and I've even heard well-meaning Christians say this, that Christians can never doubt. Well, here's what I would tell you. Number one, a faith that can't be tested, it should not be trusted. That what we believe is not a blind leap into the dark. But doubt is not the opposite of faith. You know what the opposite of faith is? Unbelief. And the strongest form of faith I found in my life and in others is, is the strongest form of faith is a faith that has wrestled through the doubt. That you've doubted and you've fought through the doubt and you've fought through the doubt and you've wrestled with the doubt. Bob Conway in his book on doubt, he said this, he says, doubt is directional. We can doubt towards God or we can doubt away from him. We need to doubt towards him. I mean, think about this. How many of you, if we were to do a poll in this room, I would say the overwhelming majority would say this. I believe that God is sovereign. That means he's in control over all. I believe that God is all powerful, can do anything. I believe that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnibenevolent. He is good. He's all good all the time. You all say it right before I preach every Sunday. He's good all the time. Everyone in this room, you say, I believe that. I believe that. But you wonder whether he will help you make ends meet this week. Or you wonder whether or not he will heal your friend of cancer. Or you wonder whether or not he will actually heal your relationship. Or you wonder whether or not he will actually intervene in your life. And you say, I believe, I believe, but I'm struggling. That's okay. As long as you do that towards God and not away from God. See, if you come to God and say, God, I believe that you're sovereign. I believe you're good. I believe you're wise. But I'm struggling with totally believing that. That's okay. Because here's what you say to him. You say, listen, that's what I'm struggling with, but I don't want to stay that way. I have doubts, but I, I don't want to have doubts anymore. I want to believe. So God, I believe, but I'm struggling to believe, but I really, 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 really want to believe. So how does Jesus respond to this dude? Well, here's what he doesn't do. Jesus didn't say, well, okay, all right, <laughs> good prayer. Go home, go to church, read the Bible, go to your rabbi, confess all of your sins, get rid of all your doubts, listen to this podcast, <laughs> then completely, after eight weeks, after you really had time to think about it, surrender your life to me, then come back to me, ask me to help you, and I might help you. Is that what Jesus does here? No. Jesus doesn't rebuke this man. The man looked him in the eyes and says, I don't believe in you, but I want to. And what does Jesus do? He helps the man. Why? Because this man's faith was small, but it was real. And so verse 25, Jesus rebukes the demons. The demon comes out of the boy, but he doesn't come out without a fight. He's, he comes out swinging, comes out of the boy, and the boy, the Bible says, is like a corpse. He looked like he was dead. He might have been dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. 
The word arose there in the Hebrew is the, or in the Greek is the word parahistemi. You say, well, what does that mean? It's the same word Mark's gonna use when he uses the word resurrection. It is a foreshadowing of what Jesus has come to do. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The boy needed a new life. And only Jesus could give it to him. Do you know what your kid who's an addict needs? Not self-help, not therapy. Your kid needs Jesus and he needs a new life. And only Jesus can give it to him. Jesus responded to this man's tiny faith with mighty power despite the mountain of unbelief in his heart. Why? Because it's not great faith we need, but it's faith in a great God. And so there that story ends, and you're like, oh, it's a wonderful end to a Disney movie. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you have the antagonist, the demons, you have the protagonist, the dad, you have Jesus, the hero. You have a happy ending. And then verse 28. All right, so that's all over. They go inside. Now, when, when they go inside the house, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is gonna teach the disciples something. Now, imagine you are the other disciples. Peter, James, and John, they've been up on the mountain You've been down in the valley. A few months ago, a few weeks ago, you were, you were bippity-boppity-booing all the demons in Galilee. Okay? You get to this kid, and you're like, nothing. Like, bippity-boppity, nothing. Nada, nihil, nothing. So what's the question that's going to be on your mind? All right, Jesus, you did it. You just said, bam, and it came out. So they came to Jesus behind closed doors and they said, Jesus, I, why, why, couldn't we, why couldn't we get rid of the demon? You know, we've done it before. Was there something special about that demon? Was it like a super demon? Was our technique wrong? Were we holding our mouth the wrong way? Had the wrong clothes on? Do we need to cross our legs? What's, what's the technique? And so Jesus looks at him and says, listen, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some people say, well, this kind, this kind of demon. I don't think he's talking about this kind of demon. Here's what he was doing. The, he was teaching his disciples the necessity of faith and prayer. They thought the issue was technique and ritual. Why? Because they relied on what they did in the past. And we do the same. When we go through problems, like you're going to have a problem probably this week. And what you normally do is you take your past experience and you use your past experience to deal with present problems. And that's not always wrong, but here's what we do. Sometimes we think that past success guarantees future success. So if I do this technique, if I do that thing, then that guarantees I'm going to do it in the future. It's like some of you with dieting. You think, well, you know, well, back when I was in my 20s, you know, I could, I could do this, I could do that, I could lose weight. Now I'm in my 40s and 50s, it ain't happening. 
And here's what, let me just let you in on everything, okay? You can't outwork a bad diet. You just can't do it. And so they relied on past success. They relied on past technique. But what you don't see them doing is you don't see them praying. The problem that Jesus says to them is that they were doing prayerless exorcism. Now think about this. You have a dad and you have the disciples and both the dad and the disciples are desperate and both the dad and the disciples are, are struggling. Think about this. The dad was desperate and struggling to believe because he overestimated the power of evil and he underestimated the power of Jesus. The disciples... They were desperate and struggled to do ministry because they underestimated the power of evil and overestimated their power to overcome it. Both are faith issues. One overestimates Satan and underestimates God. The other one underestimates Satan and overestimates our strength to defeat him. Both were faith issues. And so when Jesus says that this kind can only be driven out by prayer, he's saying this, that true faith is a faith that prays. The difference between the disciples and the dad is this. At least the dad admitted he had a faith problem. The dad prayed even though he struggled to believe. But the disciples in this text, they don't pray at all. They're too proud to pray. They don't think they need to pray. They would rather rely on their own strength than cry out to Jesus. And in this particular event, this dad had more faith than the disciples. Because even though he doubted, he still brought his son to Jesus and he came to Jesus with desperate dependence. And what Jesus is saying to them and to us today, I am just one prayer away from you. Don't depend on yourself. Call out to me. Past success is no promise for future success. You and I must never advance beyond our need for Jesus. It's not like you graduate and then you don't need Jesus anymore. You need to pray. See, prayer is faith turned towards God. Prayer expresses our reliance on God. And if we are aware of our own inadequacies to deal with the situation, you will pray. The disciples were powerless because they were prayerless. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, a life of power and authority goes hand in hand with the life of one who is intimate and in prayer with God. And I think that this intimacy and this life of prayer isn't that you're constantly spending hours upon hours in a room praying. I think it's just a lifestyle of prayer where you're constantly convening and communing with God, whether you're at work, whether you're working out, whether you're walking down the road, whether you're at Walmart or Publix or Target, you're constantly praying to God. And let me let you in on something. Your prayer life is an indicator of, number one, how much you really rely on God, and number two, how much you really rely on yourself. And I know this from personal experience, that God will bring you to a point of powerless desperation so that you will see that your only solution is him. He makes you powerless to expose your prayerlessness to drive you to your knees. 
Kevin DeYoung said, he says, if you don't pray, it's because you either have very little problems or you have very little faith. He says, what would I do to get more faith and what would I do if I had more faith? The answer to both of those questions is pray. Let's end with this, I'm sure you're ready. What, number one question, what are you struggling to believe God with today? What are you struggling with? Remember I said everyone struggles. Are you struggling to trust God with your kids? With your marriage? With your finances? With your future? With this country? With a sickness or an illness that you're struggling with? with sin in your life, with fear? What are you struggling to believe God with today? Second question, who are you most like in this story? Are you like the disciples? Where you underestimate the power of evil and you overestimate your own strength to defeat it? Or are you like the dad? You, underestim you overestimate the power of evil and you underestimate the power of Jesus. Both are faith issues. Either you think really high of yourself and low of Jesus, or you think really high of evil and high of yourself thinking you can overcome it. If that's you, wherever you are, stay with me. Don't leave, don't check out. This is what I, I'm gonna give you a simple way to deal with these faith issues. I'm gonna give you a simple prayer. Would you like a simple prayer? I'm gonna give you a simple prayer to help you if you're struggling to believe God for something today. Here's what it is. You ready for it? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you'll be that honest with God today, maybe some of you, you're not Christians and you wanna be a Christian, but you're struggling to get over the hump. Faith is a gift. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Small faith in a big God is better than big faith in no God or faith in something else. A guy named Francis Bacon said this, and with a name like Bacon, he's gotta be good. <laughs> he says this. He says, if you begin in certainty, you will end with doubt. But if you get, begin in doubt, you will end in certainty. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. It's okay to doubt. Just doubt towards God. Don't doubt away from him. I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your love. And I thank you, God, that you do not ask us to have great faith. But God, you've asked us to put our faith in you. And so God, for the person in this room who is not yet a Christian, has not given their life to you, would they pray this simple prayer, Lord, Jesus, I believe in you, 
but I'm struggling to believe in you, but I want to believe in you, so help me believe in you. In Jesus' name. And those of you in this room, you are Christians, but you're struggling. Would you pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I do believe in you. I have believed in you, but I'm struggling right now. Help me believe in you. Father, I pray your spirit is doing a work that only your spirit can do. That as we sing this song of who you are, that you're a way maker, that God, you would cause faith to rise, and hearts to sing, and hands to raise, and worship to begin. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing about our way maker. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.